One of the enduring controversies in Christianity is God's attitude toward possessions and wealth in particular. Some will take issue with my message tonight stating that there are other blessings besides money and better ones. Now, I'm going to tell you that that is absolutely true. There are greater gifts out there. And when the Lord promises to bless you for your generosity, it doesn't always mean that He's going to give you a monetary windfall. Okay? But gifts of love, family, a full belly, peace, and solace are all gifts that don't carry much controversy with them. Money, on the other hand, always gets surrounded by controversy. Whether it stems from greed or jealousy, money has been called the root of all evil and the dammer of souls. But what does God say about money? Does God hate rich people? Some try to make that case, but what does the Word of God say about people with money? Atheists like to try to say that the Bible is contradictory on money and wealth, but are they right? Some say God condemns the wealthy as being unable to get into heaven. But does He? Tonight we will examine the mystery of how God feels about money. We will look at three men in different relationships to money. One who is rich, one who would commit blasphemies and any number of sins in order to get money and fame, and another who's a slave but not in the way you might think. The myths and dogmas about money are many, but we hopefully will shatter many of the mythological beliefs surrounding what God says about money and actually see what the Word of God really says about this most controversial of gifts, money. And what do we know of the Redeemer himself? Was Yeshua rich or was he poor? Christian dogma will tell you that Yeshua was a pauper, but the Bible hints that he may not have been as destitute as people believe. Could Yeshua have grown up rich? Welcome to Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. I'm Dr. Mick Robison, your guide through the controversies, history, and debates surrounding the Bible. Tonight will be an essay episode, and we will jump into that in just a moment. But before we start the lesson tonight, I want to talk to you tonight about preborn. Now, let me stop for a second. <clears throat> I'm going to clear this up just so anybody out there, you know, is, might be thinking this. I have not talked to preborn, and they have not offered me a red cent. And I'm going to be very emphatic here. I will never, ever, ever accept a penny from preborn. Not because of negative feelings, but because they are working to save children. And that is a holy mission. They're doing God's work, and that's all the payment I need. They're an organization, if you don't know about them, you can check them out at preborn.com. They're an organization that takes mothers that are considering abortion as an answer to their unplanned pregnancy. And they take them in and they give them an ultrasound. And they let them see their unborn child. And the amazing thing is, 
80% of these women go on to have the baby. I wish it was 100%, but 80% choose life when confronted with a picture of their unborn child. And that is awesome. They need your financial support though. A gift of about $140 will actually provide an ultrasound session for up to five young women. And as it says on their website, with your gift you'll receive the story of a mother who chose life as well as an ultrasound image of a baby you helped to save. And in the spirit of God, that is a divine mission. The children are ours to protect. That's a sacred mission from God himself. So please support Preborn. Save the life of a child. And remember what Yeshua told us in regards to children. If you look in Matthew chapter 18, we'll start with verse 2 and go through 6. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greater in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if he were cast into the sea and drowned with a millstone fastened about his neck. Please consider supporting Preborn and help save the life of a child. Now, on with tonight's episode. What does God say about wealth and riches? Does he hate the rich? Well, let's delve into what God says. Our first person of interest tonight is someone who arguably has one of the worst relationships with money that you can find. And I have to say that he has a bad relationship with money and just about everyone else for that matter. His name was Simon, and he was falsely called Simon Magus. Now, some people today in modern, say, modern English say Magus, but the word Magus actually indicates a Zoroastrian priest. He was no Zoroastrian priest. He was, however, a sorcerer. Simon is an interesting and controversial figure. Uh, the act of simony, or paying for a position, is named after him. And this is the guy who tries to buy his way into the power of the apostles after he has co committed grievous sins to try to get fame and riches. After he's rebuked by the disciples, we find out in extra canonical text that Simon returned to his old ways and not only impersonated a God and at times um, the Messiah and at other times apparently even impersonated the Holy Spirit. But he founded his own religion, the Simonians. Now his role in the scriptures is limited, but he appears in Acts chapter 8. We'll start in verse 9. And a certain man by the name Simon was before in the city using magic some translations say sorcery, and amazing the nation of Samaria, saying himself to be a certain great one, to whom they were all giving heed from small unto great, saying, this one is the great power of God. Now let me stop there. So Simon is in Samaria. 
and he's a sorcerer and he's performing sorceress fates and trying to tell people that he is a certain great one. Now we find out from extra canonical sources and histories written by the church fathers that he was trying to pass himself off as the Messiah. Okay, so we'll pick up again in verse 11. And they were giving heed to him because of his having for a long time amazed them with deeds of magic. And when they believed Philip, this is in verse 12. Now Philip has gone and has gone to Samaria and is preaching the gospel. Okay, give you the, the, the backdrop here. So verse 12, and when they believed Philip, proclaiming good news, the things concerning the reign of God and the name of Yeshua the Christ, they were baptized both men and women. And Simon also himself did believe. And having been baptized, he was continuing with Philip, beholding also signs and mighty acts being done. He was amazed. So here we have Simon Magus, the sorcerer, converting to Christianity, being baptized, and continuing to go at, in a way as a disciple of Philip. Okay? And then we pick this up in verse 14. And this is where things take a sudden jog to the left. And the apostles in Jerusalem, having heard that Samaria had received the, the word of God, sent unto them John and Peter, who having come down, prayed concerning them that they may receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon any of them, and only they had been baptized to the name of the Lord Yeshua. So the people had been baptized in the name of Yeshua, but the Holy Spirit had not descended on them. So Peter and John go to Samaria and they pray for the Holy Spirit to descend on them and, and for these people to receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, And when they proceeded to lay hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. And Simon, beholding that through the laying on of hands of the apostles, the Holy Spirit was given, brought before them, meaning the apostles, money, saying, Give also to me this authority, that whomsoever I may lay hands upon, he may receive the Holy Spirit. So here he is trying to bribe not only the apostles, but at least indirectly trying to bribe God to give him this authority to grant the Holy Spirit. Now this tells you where his heart's going to go immediately, doesn't it? If he's going to he's going to put his faith in money to bribe the apostles for this power, what do you think he's going to do if he had been given it? He would have used it and made people probably pay to get the Holy Spirit. That's that's what's suggested here. That this may have been his motivation. And Peter sees through this. Peter sees what his hope is here. that he's, he, he's, he's hoping for something that he can use for profit. So verse 20, And Peter said to him, Your silver with you may it perish, because you thought that the gift of God could be possessed through money. You have neither a lot or a part in this, for your heart is not right before God. Reform and turn away from your wickedness and beseech God if then the purpose of your heart may be forgiven.
See, he sees the purpose of his heart. He's wanting to make money off of this. He's going to give them money, he's going to pay for it, and he's going to make other people pay for it, is what seems to be at play here. <clears throat> and then Peter continues in verse 23, For the gall of bitterness and the bond of unrighteousness I see in you. And Simon answers him and says, you know, beseech or pray for me to the Lord that nothing may come upon me of the things you've spoken. So he's worried that he just got cursed that his silver die with him. So this is what we see happening with Simon Magus. Okay? Now this is the single of appearance of Simon Magus in the canonical literatures. Okay? There's a lot more in the traditions and the non-canonical scriptures that we see picked up afterwards. All right? So in the apocryphal works, the pseudo-Clementine, the pseudo-Clementine literature is Clement was a disciple of Peter's. And in fact, Clement wrote several epistles. He wrote uh, at least one large sort of missive about things. And that is actually, first and second Clement are included in some canons. In fact, in some versions of the Septuagint Bible, we see first and second Clement included. All right, so Clement was a church father, disciple of Peter, and his works are included in some bound canonical codices. Now, I want to clarify here about Clement because Clement of Rome is who we're talking about. Now, there was a Clement of Alexandria as well. Don't, don't confuse the two. Uh, that gets sometimes a little confusing. Uh, Clement of Rome is who we're talking about. And Clement of Rome was an, a, a disciple of Peter. And he is often regarded as, uh, as the person who becomes the Bishop of Rome after Peter. So the, basically the second Pope of Rome. Okay, So just to clear that up. Now, we only know of one work by Clement. All right? First Clement. There's a second Clement, but some people question its authenticity. There are other little epistles that are attributed to Clement that may or may not be spurious. They, they may be real. They, they, they may have been uh, forgeries. We're not, we're not real sure. Okay? But there are some Clementine scrolls and Clementine works out there. And what I mean by Clementine is I'm not talking about a type of orange. I'm talking about stuff that's attributed to Clement. It's pretty well established that these homilies that I'm going to talk about here in just a little bit are not actually the works of Clement, but they were attributed to him in those early centuries. For that reason, they're referred to as pseudo-Clementine literature. Pseudo meaning false, okay? <clears throat> but anyway, uh, back to the story. In, in the apocryphal works, they include the Acts of Peter, the pseudo-Clementine literature, and the epistles uh, epistle of the Apostles, as well as the Acts of Peter and Paul, Simon Magus appears as a formidable sorcerer with the ability to levitate and fly, as well as kill people with a word. He's sometimes referred to as the Bad Samaritan due to his malevolent character. Okay. Now, he's attributed to also by other church fathers. Justin Martyr it wrote about him. Unfortunately, Justin Martyr's work was lost. Now, Murphy kind of did a number on us there, but Murphy's Law didn't completely get us because it turns out that Irenaeus 
in his adversus heresies, in other words, his against heresies, used Justin Martyr's work, which was extant then, it was around then, as a source. So we kind of know what Justin Martyr said about uh, about Simon uh, Magus because of the work of Irenaeus, okay, because Irenaeus's work has survived. All right, so Irenaeus records that after being cast out by the apostles, Simon Magus went to Rome, and there he joined himself with a woman named Helen, and he went around basically impersonating the Messiah, like kind of like what, he, what we catch him doing in the Bible, in the canonical account. That he was a person, he was impersonating a Messiah. He later impersonates God the Father, and he impersonates the Holy Spirit. Uh, he performs uh, acts of sorcery during the reign of Claudius. We're told from Irenaeus, and that he was regarded as a god by some communities. He was apparently very good at at manipulating people. Uh, he was a con man. I mean, he was a, he was an early church con man, is what this guy was. And he's, he was said to have been honored with a statue on an island in the Tiber. And on, on the statue, it reads, Simone Deo Sancto, to Simon the Holy God. So apparently he did convince at least a sculptor that he was God. So this guy got around and this guy became a real contender of the faith. All right, he, he, was, he was contending with the apostles for converts perhaps in bitterness uh, for being rejected by them. Uh, what's interesting is, is in the Acts of Peter, you have a more elaborate tale of a second confrontation between Peter and Simon Magus. Now, let me, let me talk about the, the Acts of Peter. And you have to be careful when you talk about some of these extra canonical texts that were considered for canonization because you have a whole slew of Gnostic texts out there and you've got to filter through that. You definitely have to filter through that because the Gnostics were were prolific writers, and we're not dealing with Gnosticism. Okay, so you ha you have to make sure you're you know there's an apocalypse of Peter, uh, which was actually considered for canonization, and, and some church fathers actually favored it more than they favored Revelation. But you have to understand there was a Gnostic apocalypse of Peter, and then there was a non-Gnostic Christian apocalypse of Peter. And so you get some things like that. You get some Gnostic Acts of the Apostles too. So you have to make sure you're, you're using your discernment there. But the Acts of Peter is a non-Gnostic text. And it was a canonical book in many Christian communities. It was canon for many communities. Remember, the canon did not come down as a monolith. It was, there were multiple canons at the time of Yeshua for the Jewish faith. There were multiple canons in the Christian faith in the first centuries. And this was part of the canon in some Christian communities. And it tells of the journeys and various deeds of Peter. And in this book, it also tells of, of Peter being crucified upside down, which is a, a, a Christian tradition, and it was talked about in this, this Acts of Peter. Now, the Acts of Peter didn't make it into the canon, not because there's particularly you know, unorthodox theology in it. In fact, there's not. There's there's nothing really unorthodox in the theology of the Acts of Peter. It was not considered for broader canonization, though, because of the ascetic message. In this book, Peter really hammers home celibacy 
even in marriage. And this gets Peter into a lot of hot water. It also got him into hot water with the church fathers as far as, far as canonizing this work, if that's assuming Peter uh, wrote this work, because when you've got this young religion, you need people, to be very blunt, to have sex and make babies. You need, you need that. Or your religion's gonna die because you've got to have a massive conversion rate if you're not reproducing. And if you're telling people that they can't have sex even in wedlock, it's gonna be like the Shakers. The Shakers were uh, uh, you know, uh, 18th or 19th century uh, group that did not believe in sexual intercourse, even in marriage. They were called the Shakers because to work off their frustration, they would uh, have these dances and they'd shake, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff and basically wear themselves out. Well, where are the Shakers today? Now they're pretty much extinct because you can't get a massive conversion rate if you can't marry and, and, and have children. You, people aren't going to go for that. And without that, they kind of died out. In this, in this uh, apocryphal work, Acts of Peter, the early church was very concerned of that fate. And so it seems that the Acts of Peter gets thrown out of the canon, not because of any important theological thing, but because this particular work has Peter preaching celibacy, even in marriage. Okay, so I just wanted to tell you about this, this work. Now in this work, Simon's performing magic in Rome. God, God comes and speaks to Peter and tells him, that Simon that you cast out of Judea, you will come up against him again in Rome. And God basically tells him, you need to confront and deal with Simon Magus. So Peter comes to Rome and he sees Simon's performing these acts of sorcery. And Peter challenges Simon to basically a miracle off. All right, it, it's it's this is a they're gonna they're gonna have a contest. All right, so this is a this is a, a a battle of miracles. So they go to the Roman Forum, which is the center of the world at this time, and a crowd gathers to see who has the real divine power. At one point, Simon speaks a word in a man's ear, and the man falls, graveyard dead. Peter goes over to the man, prays to God, and the man is resurrected. Now the crowd that had been fairly neutral looks at this and they say, well, anybody can kill somebody, but to bring someone back from the dead, that's, you know, that takes real divine power. And so they start to go over to Peter's side. Well, Simon in order to prove himself to be the divine power, says, wait, 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 let me show you something I can do. And he levitates into the air and is literally flying around the forum. Peter at this point prays to God to stop his flying and make him, you know, maimed or disabled. So God smacks Simon Magus slap out of the air. And this is, a, this is quite literally a public smackdown because God smacks him literally down right out of the air. And he falls and breaks his leg in three parts, or, or his legs. I think he actually broke both his legs, if I remember correctly. 
And the crowd turns on him and throws stones at him. And being grievously injured, he has to have people carry him out. And eventually he has to leave Rome because uh, the Romans lay accusations of, of, of sorcery or witchcraft against him. The Acts of Peter then goes on to say that eventually Simon Magus dies while being, quote, while being sorely cut by two physicians, end quote. So uh, whether they were doing surgery on him or whether they were doing some kind of bloodletting is, is, is a little unclear, but uh, he apparently dies uh, under, under doctor's care. In another apocryphal work called the Acts of Peter and Paul, it's a different version of this confrontation. In this confrontation, Simon Magus is before the Emperor Nero performing his, his magic. And Peter and Paul show up and they have this contest before Nero. And Simon Magus asks for a big wooden tower to be built and he climbs the tower and jumps from it and is floating and is flying. Well, once again, God intervenes and boom, smacks him down. And in this tale, Simon Magos dies on the spot. Uh, he hits the ground and dies, quote, divided in four parts, end quote, due to the fall. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but apparently his body split open and he, he, he basically came apart. Uh, he, I guess, hit so hard that he just kind of burst. Uh, Peter and Paul are then imprisoned by Nero, who further orders that Simon's body be kept carefully for three days, encased Christ-like the magician rise, you know, should rise again, which he doesn't. Now, <clears throat> interesting here, keep this in mind about the Acts of Peter and Paul, because in this apocryphal work, the Acts of Peter and Paul, they're both against Simon. And that's really interesting because when we get to the Ebionites, there seems to be something else at play here, okay? Now, I'm going to mention something that Simon is also said in other works to have started his own religion called the Simonians. And the Simonians are very Gnostic. Right? They're very Gnostic in their beliefs, very mystical, which helps sort of support the claim that Simon founded the Simonians because being a sorcerer, it, he would tend to gravitate toward the mysticism of, of the Gnostic faith. And so there, there may be... There may be some there, there, is what I'm saying. More fascinating, though, is the controversy regarding Simon Magus with the Ebionites. The Ebionites were a sect of Christianity, and I want to stress this. They were not some weird fringe group. All right? It appears that the Ebionites were actually a fairly, and I'm going to use the term mainstream, but I'm going to, I'm going to sort of caveat that a little bit. But they were a fairly mainstream group, understanding that there wasn't one mainstream in the first and second centuries. There were many mainstreams. There were many ways to be a Christian. Ebionites were adoptionists. Now what that means is they believed that Yeshua was a mortal man whose soul was closest to the Lord God and remained of all people of all time the most faithful to the Lord. And so when he is baptized and God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, that at that moment, Yeshua became the son of God, that he is adopted as the son of God by the one true all-encompassing Yahweh, okay? So God the Father, in other words, adopts Jesus and elevates him 
to the highest of all created beings. That's the adoptionist belief. That is not a fringe belief. Understand that. Trinitarianism was the fringe belief at the time. It becomes orthodox. But there was no Trinitarian view in the first and second century. Trinitarianism does not come about really with any headway uh, until the third century, and it doesn't become an orthodoxy until actually after the Council of Nicaea. Most people try to say the Council of Nicaea is when Trinitarianism came in. But if you if you read the original Nicene Creed, it is not Trinitarian, it's binary. It uses the homoousius concept, which was proposed interestingly by Constantine, who was a pagan. But it says that God the Father and God the Son are homoousius. They are of the same substance. But it doesn't include the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't get included, and you don't actually have the codifying of a trinity until the Constantinopolitan Creed years later. In fact, Athanasius, whose Athanasian Creed supposedly supports the trinity, actually didn't support the trinity. Athanasius supported the divinity of Christ and that Christ was one substance with the Father. But Athanasius didn't believe in a trinity because he didn't support the Holy Spirit as being equal to Christ and the Father. But the Athanasian Creed, made long after Athanasius' death, supports the trinity. So don't get confused. Athanasian Creed supports the trinity, but Athanasius himself, after whom the creed was named, never supported a trinity. So just understand that. I wanted to get that out of the way. So the Ebionites are adoptionists. They were subordinationists as well. There was, there was all kinds of ways of understanding the relationship between God and Yeshua. The Ebionites, though, were, were adoptionists, but they weren't fringe. They were actually one of three or four mainstreams of thought. Okay? So I, I just wanted to cover that. <clears throat> now, Yeshua, being the Son of God, however you believe that, was not a problem for the Ebionites. It's just how he got there. But they did have a huge problem with Paul. The Ebionites despised Paul. They detested him. And they refused to recognize him as an apostle. And what's interesting is, is, it's, is there has been scholarly debate as to whether or not the Ebionites equated Paul and Simon Magus. Some of their literature seems to be saying that Simon Magus and Paul were, if not the same person, were one and the same in their nature. And I'm going to read you a passage from the Pseudo-Clementine homily number 17 in chapter 19 and set the stage in the Pseudo-Clementine literature which was used by the Ebionites. And we know this from the Church Fathers, that the Ebionites used the Pseudo-Clementine literature as being works of Clement. They believed it was works of Clement, and they believed it was, it was Holy Scripture, or at least extremely important later Scripture. If not divinely inspired, certainly it was something very important because it was written by Clement, supposedly. But that is now more or less refuted. In this homily 17, in several of the homilies, it records debates between Simon Magus and Peter. Okay, And in homily 17, we see that Simon Magus has come and he's having another debate with Peter. And in chapter 19, 
Peter is answering Simon Magus. And this is a little bit long, but I, I want you to pay special attention, especially to this first part. If then, this is Peter talking, if then our Yeshua appeared to you in a vision, made himself known to you, and spoke to you, it was as one who is enraged with an adversary. And this is the reason why it is through visions and dreams or through revelations that were from without that he spoke to you. But can anyone be rendered fit for instruction through apparitions? And if you will say it is possible, then I ask, why did our teacher abide in discourse a whole year to those who were awake? And how are we to believe your word when you tell us that he appeared to you? And how did he appear to you when you maintain opinions contrary to his teaching? But if you were seen and taught by him and become his apostle for even a single hour, proclaim his utterances, interpret his sayings, love his apostles, contend not with me who companied with him. For in direct opposition to me, who am a firm rock, the foundation of the church, you now stand. If you were not opposed to me, you would not accuse me and revile the truth proclaimed by me in order that I may not be believed when I state what I myself have heard with my own ears from the Lord, as if I were evidently a person that was condemned and in bad repute. And if you say that I am condemned, you bring accusation against God who revealed the Christ to me and you inveigh against him who pronounced me blessed on the account of the revelation. But indeed, if you really wish to work in the cause of truth, learn first from all of us that have learned from him and becoming a disciple of the truth, become a fellow worker with us. So these are the words of Peter in this pseudo-Clementine literature. Notice the, that first part. He's, he's chastising Simon Magus for claiming to have had a vision of Christ and then go in and say, well, now I'm an apostle. That's exactly what Paul did. So it's very plain the anti-Pauline point of view being expressed in this pseudo-Clementine homily. Now, there's some debate among scholars as to whether or not they thought Simon Magus and Paul were the same person. And I don't know how much evidence there is for that, but there is debate that some scholars think that, well, they're actually saying that Paul and Simon Magus were the same person. Others are just saying, no, Simon Magus claims something similar, and the two are being equated metaphorically, and they're using Simon Magus as a metaphor for Paul, and others are just saying, well, no, Simon Magus just claimed something similar and they, they didn't like Simon Magus and for the same reason, they don't like Paul. So it's a little unclear, uh, I guess in some scholars' mind, you know, how, how this homily was being interpreted by the Ebionites. However they thought of this, if they thought this was a message from Clement, that Simon Magus was claiming visions, it's no wonder that they also despised Paul, because it sound, this sounds so much like Paul, okay? So just understand that that was some part of the great controversy in the early church. Some people did not like Paul. There were a whole sects of Christianity that rejected Paul. Paul became canonical stuff and the basis of theology later. In the first century or so, 
Paul was actually fairly hotly debated among these different groups. Okay, but again, this this is relating mostly to Simon Magus, right? This is talking about what Simon Magus was claiming. But again, and I want to stress this again, in the Acts of Peter and Paul, we have Paul up against Simon Magus in that work. So it shows the debate. But this is all scenery. And I, and I paint this scenery for you, hoping that you'll understand a little more about the first century church, that there was all this controversy going on. The, the first century church was, was not monolithic in its scriptures, it was not monolithic in its views, and it was not monolithic in, on, on its views of, of certain apostles. Certain apostles had their followers, certain other apostles had their, their followers, and they, these groups would even debate with each other about which apostle was the greatest. Not everybody believed Peter was the greatest. Some believed John was the greatest. Some believed that Matthew was the greatest. So you have to understand that. You have to understand the scenery in which all of this stuff is happening. But regardless of the scenery, Simon Magus is a corrupt man in league with demonic powers, and he's malevolent. His issues with money are twofold. First, it is his God. Ultimately, influence and riches are his gods. He, his God is his own avarice. He grows around blaspheming and impersonating a God or the Messiah or the Holy Spirit or God the Father in order to con people, get followers, and enrich himself. He then puts more faith in money than in God and tries to bribe the disciples and indirectly bribe God to give him power that very likely he was going to turn around and use to enrich himself. He's motivated by greed, by avarice of one type or another. And he's so obsessed with his greed for power, influence, and riches that he becomes a false apostle and a real contender for some time with the founders of the Christian religion. While his greed's not limited to money, it is his avarice that ultimately leads to his downfall and his condemnation. All right, so that's Simon Magus. And he is a very good example of the corruption of riches and the corruption that greed gives you. But let's talk about another example. The notion that God hates rich people doesn't really come from Simon Magus. You can, you can use Simon Magus to refer to blasphemy, to impersonating God, to you know, making yourself out to be a God, to also his greed and his problems with being a con man and, and generally just being a nasty person all the way around. But you can also talk about his problems with, with, with influence of riches and money. You see what he's after. Well, what about just riches, though? Somebody who's not looking for glory and fame or wants to be a god, that pride mixed in with your greed, what about somebody who has a lot of material things? It's chapter 19 of Matthew that gives us the view that God hates rich people. And I'm going to read it here. I want you to listen to it carefully and see the message that Yeshua is giving. Don't look at it on the surface. Put any jealousy you might have towards someone that has more money than you aside and listen to what Yeshua is saying. Matthew 19, we'll start in verse 
21. Yeshua said to him, now, well, hang on, let me, let me set the stage. A young man has come to Yeshua, and he is asked, what is it I lack? Because he, he says, you know, what do I need to, to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? And Yeshua tells him, well, you've got to keep the commandments. And he reads off the commandments. Don't murder, you know, honor your father and your mother, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. He, he lists off a lot of commandments that, that, that the man should be upholding. And the man said, I've done this. I've been there, done that. I've upheld these all my life. What do I still not have? What, what am I lacking? And this is when we pick up with, with Yeshua's response. Matthew 19, uh, verse 21. If you want to be perfect, Yeshua says to him, go, sell what you have and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. But when the young man heard what Yeshua said, he went away mournfully, for he had great possessions. And then Yeshua says to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. That's interesting. They were astonished to hear that it's difficult for a wealthy man to get into the kingdom of God. They're astonished at this. And they say, who then can be saved? But Yeshua looked at them and said to them, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So this is what Yeshua says. Now note that this, the disciples were greatly astonished. Let's deal with that first. Why were the disciples astonished that Yeshua would say it's difficult for a rich man to get into heaven? Why would they be astonished at that? If Yeshua was a pauper, this shouldn't be that astonishing. Huh. But was Yeshua a pauper? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 2. Yeshua is born, and the Magi come to the manger. Wait. Eh, wrong. Hang on. Hold the phone. I hate to tell everybody this, but the nativity scenes are all wrong. The Magi did not come to the manger. Sorry, they didn't. In fact, by the time the Magi, or Magi, find Yeshua, he's in a house. We're told he's with his parents in a house. And they may not have even gotten there right when, Je when, when Yeshua or Jesus was, was born. We learn that Herod orders the murder of the innocents, right? The massacre of the innocents. He learns from the Magi when the sign in the heavens appeared. Then he orders in Matthew chapter 2 verses 16 through 18 that the massacre of the innocents include boys up to two years old. So it is entirely possible that the Magi didn't show up for a year and a half, two years. That's interesting. So the Magi weren't, very likely, weren't near the birth of Yeshua at all. They came apparently when he was 
maybe a toddler or close to. So you got to remember that. The Bible's unclear about that point, but that seems to be what the text is telling us. What's also unclear is the number of the Magi. Magi is plural. So there are at least two of them. And there were three kinds of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there is an assumption made on the part of the Western church that that indicates there were three magi. But that's an assumption, and a rather large one at that. Well, let's deal with the first thing about the magi. And that is, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts, we travel afar. Well, wrong, sorry, they weren't kings. It's not until around the third century that the Magi get a posthumous promotion. They're considered kings after the third century. And many people believe that that's because of Psalm 72, where in verses 10 and 11 it says that kings are going to bring presents. You know, there's a king of, of Tarshish and a king of Sheba and Seba uh, that they're going to offer offer gifts and so the the magi get recast as kings but they weren't kings in the 8th century western culture gives now the three magi or three magi names and kingdoms and we're told that one is Balthazar king of, of either Arabia or Ethiopia depending on your uh, on your particular tradition Melchior, who was supposed to be king of Persia, and Gathaspa, which is sometimes rendered as Caspar or Caspar, who is supposed to be king of India. Unfortunately, this is all Christian embellishment. It's mythology. It's total myth. It's not biblical. The Bible never says any of this. And it's not even in line with the earliest traditions. So if they weren't kings, what were they? The Magi were Zoroastrian priests. Zoroastrianism was the only monotheistic religion in the region at the time other than Judaism. It was the official religion of Persia and it was founded by Zoroaster, also known as Zarathustra. And Zarathustra or Zoroaster was the Moses of the Zoroastrian religion. He wrote in a, in a language called Avestan and he wrote what is known as the Avesta, because it was written in Avesta, and it was the holy scriptures of the Zoroastrian faith. And, and where the word comes from is it comes from Greek, magos, which is derived from the old Persian, magush, and from the Avestan word, magalno. What this refers to is the religious caste, okay? So the, the magulno are the religious caste into which Zoroaster was born, and the term refers to the Persian priestly caste of Zoroastrianism. All right, so what about the nuts? That answers what they were. How many were they? Well, Western dogma says that there are three because of the three kinds of gifts, but the earliest traditions and the Eastern tradition says there were 12 Magi that showed up. Now what's interesting is, is there are codes in the Bible, and we'll talk about that in another episode. There are codes in the Bible, and numbers have meaning and significance in the Bible. If you notice, there's certain numbers that sort of pop up again. 7, 3, 12, 40. 
these numbers pop up a lot. Okay? The number 12 has special significance because it represents government. 12 is significant because it signifies God's government, His power and His authority. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 disciples, which become the 12 apostles. There are 12 magi in the earliest and the eastern tradition. There were 12 spies sent out to spy on Canaan. 12 judges throughout Israel's history. There are 24, which is two times 12, elders around the throne of God. What's more is the Magi coming from distant lands may have been a, a prophecy of the 12 apostles themselves. There are some traditions that state that the, the 12 Magi coming from these distant lands represent sort of the disparate nature of the 12 apostles. You get one that's a tax collector. You get some that are fishermen. You know, you have the, they come from different backgrounds. The Magi came from different ba backgrounds and worshiped at the feet of Yeshua. And so some people view them as 12 Magi, a prophecy of the 12 apostles to come. All right. Also, the tradition of three Magi makes absolutely no sense. Three priests traveling with a lot of booty because they weren't going to bring Yeshua a gold coin, a nugget of myrrh, and a nugget of frankincense. Honestly, that would have been insulting to give to a prince or a king. That would have been insulting. When you go to pay, you know, to pay tribute or homage to a king, you give till it hurts. You give a kingly gift, hence the reason the term, kingly gift, for something that's great. So they would have been going with a kingly gift of gold, a kingly gift of frankincense, and a kingly gift of myrrh. Traveling with all of this booty, they would have been prime targets for sand pirates. Pirates weren't just on the seas. Pirates were in the desert as well, the sandy seas. And these sand pirates would have targeted three magi very easily, and they would have robbed them blind. What makes more sense is the 12 Magi, because the 12 Magi would have been able to form a caravan, had the kingly gifts, and what's more, they would have had a retinue and guards with them. And that would have protected them from a lot of these sand pirates, because the sand pirates tended to travel in smaller bands because it's easy for a small band of people to disappear in the desert. And in the desert, you don't have to have the scraping together of as much water and food for a small band. A large band of pirates wouldn't be able to survive very long. They would have had to really ratchet up and, 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 and steal from people a lot more and, and drawn a lot of attention to themselves and they wouldn't have been able to disappear as easy. So these, these sand pirates in that time tended to be small groups of men that would hit smaller caravans or, or very poorly armed caravans. So the tradition of three magi just wandering in the desert to go find Yeshua doesn't make any sense. It would have been a larger caravan probably paid for by pooling the resources of many Zoroastrian priests. So the Eastern tradition is not only older, but it just plain makes more sense. Okay? Now that's now that we have that clear, 
We also need to say that also evidence that there was more than three Magi is the fact that they were clearly impressive. Herod's reaction to them indicates that. Three foreigners coming to a despot king like Herod and saying that he was not the rightful king, that the rightful king is some newborn baby or toddler out there somewhere among the peasantry, probably would have resulted in a disappearance. Now, let me say this about disappearing people. The Mafia isn't the only organization that disappeared people in the desert, all right? Kings of Antiquity started that tradition a long time before the movie Goodfellas came along, all right? Three Magi would have been an easy thing to remedy, but 12 esteemed Zoroastrian priests with their retinue and guards, and possibly with Persian royal ties, given the fact that the Persian kings were tied very closely with the Zoroastrian religion would have been a whole other matter for Herod to deal with. He wouldn't have been able to quietly disappear these people. And it would likely have been very intimidating to him. And we know from the scripture that he was very troubled by the Magi, not just because of a possible challenge to the throne, but possibly from the Magi themselves. Because they come to him and they say, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The word in the Greek that's used there is taraso. It means to stir or agitate, to roil water. It's not just to boil it, to roil it for water to be really churning or, or to make a liquid turbulent, cloudy, muddy. The metaphor there is it, it, it troubled him like the, the roiling of water and it made his thought muddy, cloudy, stirred up as if with sediment. In other words, he was so agitated, he was sent into confusion as to what to do. It would be expected with only three Magi for there to be sort of a Hollywood godfather response on the part of Herod. You know, the last time I checked, I was king. Go, make him an offer they can't refuse. Let him sleep with the camels. You know, sleep with the camels because desert can't really sleep with the fishes. So you would expect that with Herod. But he doesn't do that at all. In fact, he almost behaves sheepishly toward them. And he cons them a little bit. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't confront them. He doesn't even disagree with them. He goes along with them and acts like he's interested. And he tells the Magi that, oh, you know, well, let me, you know, when you come back, let me know. I'll go worship him too. He's not, he's not confrontational. He's not even protective of his throne to their face. And that indicates that there was power and authority that was frightening to Herod on the part of these Magi. But still, I have to bring myself back to the message tonight. It's part of the scenery. Don't get lost in the scenery, but understand the scenery because it gives us context. But what's important here is that they bring gifts. And not, not just three little gifts. 
three types, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but they would have brought a lot of gold, a lot of frankincense, a lot of myrrh. And if there were 12 magi, it would have been quite substantial. It would have been truly a kingly gift. But let's deal with what the gifts were. Gold is gold. We kind of understand gold, right? It's a coinage metal. It was the most valuable coinage metal at the time and because uh, they didn't really have platinum and, and palladium and, 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 and all those metals that we have today. But gold was, was sort of, well, gold was the gold standard, right? It was the standard that they used for value. Frankincense was a priestly gift. And frankincense was basically tree sap. Now, we'll say it came from a tree because people want to call it a tree, but this is the desert. We're not talking about some big redwood. This was more of a shrub. And there's still frankincense, quote unquote, trees today. You can still get frankincense today. It's a little hard to find, but you can find frankincense to this day. And what they would do is they'd go out and they'd, they'd go to this, quote unquote, tree. It's still more of a shrub. But they would cut into the bark through the dead outer protective layer of bark into the living tissue underneath and it would exude sap which would dry in the hot desert air and they would collect this and they would burn it for incense and they would make sacred oils and stuff from it and frankincense smells very good and i actually have some and i, I, I will tr sometimes burn frankincense and myrrh i wish i had gold but <laughs> um I will, I will burn frankincense and myrrh sometimes uh at christmas as just sort of a a thing to you know sort of enrich the kids to sort of give the the scratch and sniff version of the of the nativity story to the kids but frankincense was extremely valuable extremely valuable it was worth many times its weight in gold as much as three or four times its weight in gold in fact and it depends on the market they had markets then just like we have markets now and the market would fluctuate over time so depending on where you were and what time period you were in frankincense may have been worth twice its weight in gold three times its weight in gold four times its weight in gold i'm sure there were periods of time where it was worth worth maybe five or six times its weight in gold the point is it was worth many times its weight in gold it's very valuable myrrh is really something very similar it was also a quote-unquote tree sap all right quote-unquote a tree sap it was really a shrub and they would collect it in a very similar way, and it was worth more than its weight in gold. Traditionally, it's, it's regarded as less valuable than frankincense, but still worth more than its weight in gold. If there was but a single chest of each, Yosef would have been pretty much set, if not for life, for a very long time. It would certainly have been enough to fund his flight to Egypt and back, and to set him up comfortably. If there were more than just three chests, if there were 12 Magi, Yosef, Mary, and Yeshua would have been set up pretty much for life. So understanding that Yosef was artisan class and not completely dirt poor, that's not to say he was wealthy before the Magi came, but he was artisan class. He was a skilled carpenter. He was not abjectly dirt poor. He wasn't sleeping on the streets, all right? He wasn't, he wasn't a complete pulp, you know, a complete pauper. He had a nest egg from the Magi, and there was another layer of income for him if he had only a small amount. But more than likely, Yosef, for his son, would have received 
huge amounts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so this is why it is surprising and astonishing to the disciples when Yeshua says of this rich young Lord, whoever he was, and nobody really knows who this person was, but when he says that it's it's more simple a task to have a camel go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to get into heaven, this doesn't make sense to the disciples. Who then can be saved, they ask? Because they're getting this from Yeshua, who grew up wealthy. He grew up well-to-do. And so the Bible, I think, is rather clear about this if you understand the story. Still, though, regardless of that, because Yeshua may well, when he started his ministry, have taken all of the riches that he had gotten from the Magi and given it away to the poor. He may have done that. You can find scriptures that may hint that he's done that because he commands that of others, right? And Yeshua lived by example. So the argument that Yeshua was a pauper may well be true at the time. But he didn't grow up a pauper. That I don't think is that you can find a whole lot of support for in the scripture, that he grew up a pauper. But he may well have given his riches to the poor. Regardless of whether Yeshua had a nest egg or not, what does he mean when he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to get into the kingdom of heaven? Well, what's he, what he means is pretty clear. Rich folks are of the devil. Anyone with a large bank account is evil and they are going to burn in hell. Well, that may be the conventional way to, to, to translate what he's saying, but maybe not. Let's look at Job. And for those of you in Alabama, it's Job, not Job. Sorry, Alabama. Sorry, I'm from Georgia. Got to pick on Alabama. It's the law. <laughs> so, but let's look at Job. All right, in Job chapter 1, we're going to talk about this wealthy man. And we're going to see what God says about this wealthy man. So, starting in Job 1, there was a certain man, and this is, by the way, this is the Septuagint. All right, I'm going to read you the Septuagint version, and then I'll read you the Masoretic text. There was a certain man in the land of Osis whose name was Job. And that man was true, blameless, righteous, and godly, abstaining from everything evil. And he had seven sons and three daughters, and his cattle consisted of 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. A yoke of oxen is two, so that would have been about 1,000 oxen, okay? 500 she-asses in the pastures and a very great household. And he had a great husbandry on the earth and that man was most noble of the men of the east. All right, that's the Septuagint version. Here's the Masoretic. And a man there was in the land of Uz. Job was his name. And that man was perfect and upright, both fearing God and turning aside from evil. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and his substance was 7,000 sheep, 
3,000 camels and 500 pairs of oxen and 500 she-asses. And the service he had was very abundant. And that man is greater than any of the sons of the east. And that's the Masoretic text. So Job is one of those evil rich people, right? Well, he's not so evil, is he? God says that he was blameless and righteous. Now, let me explain this, because there's only two people in the whole of the Bible that are described as blameless people. Yeshua is described as blameless and sinless. Job is described as blameless. Now, that doesn't mean he's sinless, but he's kind of like the tax collector we find in Luke 18. If you look in Luke 18, we find the story that Yeshua talks about of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, the tax collectors were the IRS agents of the day. And this tax collector, this IRS agent, was so ashamed of his sin, if only that were true today, he was so ashamed of his sin that he could not even look toward the heavens. He beat his chest and he was beating his chest and he was saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on this sinner. This is what this tax collector is doing. And he can't, he can't even raise his eyes toward heaven. He's so ashamed. The Pharisee, on the other hand, is, oh, look at me. Oh, Lord, look at me. I've kept this commandment. I've kept this commandment. I do this and I do that. And I do this and I do that. I'm all that in a bag of chips. Look, look at me. This is what the Pharisee is doing. This is his attitude. And, oh, thank you, God, I'm not like this tax collector you see. Uh, right? This is the way the Pharisee is acting. And Yeshua says that the tax collector is the one who went home justified before the Lord. His existence was justified before God. And this is the way it is with Job. What's interesting about Job, and this is a point I'm going to make, and I'm going to defend it in a little bit. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say this and defend it. I'm going to say this, then I'm going to go through, through some other things, and then I'll come back to the statement about to, I'm about to make and defend it toward the end. Okay? I don't think anyone will disagree that the character of Simon is questionable to say the least. Simon was a con man. He got wealth. But he wasn't wealthy. He was a con man, and what riches he got, he used for ill ill gain, all right, and ill reasons. Job is a truly wealthy man. He is truly wealthy. The rich young lord was not wealthy at all, nor really was Simon. They weren't wealthy at all. Job was truly wealthy. Now I know that's a point of semantics, but it has dire spiritual consequences. That statement, that Job was truly wealthy, the rich young Lord was described as rich, but he was not rich. He wasn't wealthy at all, and neither was Simon. And I'll defend that in a little bit, but I want you to stew on that, that question for a little bit. Think about what I'm saying. How can the wealthy young Lord, who's described as wealthy, not be wealthy at all? Think about that. It's a point of semantics, but it has very dire consequences spiritually. And I'm going to illustrate this 
with the Word of God. You see, wealth can take many forms. Alright? It can take many, many forms. But the true measure of wealth is your character. If we look at Matthew 17, 27, we're going to start seeing God's attitude toward money. And then we'll come back to my statement that Simon wasn't wealthy, the rich young Lord wasn't wealthy, and the true measure of wealth is character. We'll come back to that after we've established God's attitude toward money from the scriptures. So Matthew, in chapter 17, let me set the story here. They're in Capernaum, and a tax collector comes to Peter. And he asks if Yeshua, your teacher, uh, doesn't, you know, does he not pay the temple tax? And Peter replies, yeah, oh yeah, he, 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 you know, he, he can pay the temple tax. He, he pays the tax. And understand that this temple tax now wasn't a Roman civil tax. It was a, it was a religious tax that was instituted by God. Understand that. It was instituted by God back in Exodus 30. God tells Moses to take a half shekel from every male that's 20 years and older, and it's used to support the tabernacle, later the temple, and it's to support the Levites because the Levites were commanded that they had to be the priests. So they had to be holy. They had to do all this priestly stuff. They weren't allowed to go to war. They, you know, they weren't allowed to do a lot of stuff. And so to support them, you know, they weren't. And, and, and the feeling is, is they weren't allowed to do a lot of things like even, you know, be animal husband husbandry people. In other words, they weren't allowed to be farmers and all that. They had to devote themselves to the priestly role. And so it was the duty of all the other tribes of Israel to sort of support the tribe of Levi because they were called upon to be the priests of God. And these temple taxes went to help support the tabernacle, later the temple, and the tribe of Levi. Okay? And this tax is not an evil tax in and of itself. It's helping to cover legitimate costs of worship and the sustenance of the priests. Unfortunately, over time, as with most things, and we'll see this, by the way, when we when we talk about what's what's said about you know the, the the house of God and everything in Malachi, the taxes get misappropriated. We'll you, we'll use a modern euphemism. They get misappropriated. Bull. They get stolen. All right, and and it's not misused. They're stolen. Okay, people start stealing the tax the the taxes and everything to use as people do, all right, for their own luxury, okay? But we'll call it misappropriated to be, uh, to be a little more correct, politically correct here, all right? Now, that's, that's the back history there of the temple tax. And this tax collector has come in Matthew chapter 17, and he wants to know, well, you know, is your, is your rabbi teaching you, know, teaching you and everything? And, and, and all that's great, but is he paying the temple tax? Peter is, appears to be concerned that Yeshua is not going to be esteemed a good Jew if he's not paying the tax, right? So he's not wanting to dishonor Yeshua. He's not wanting to, you know, to endanger him. So he says, oh, yeah, you know, he, he, he can pay the tax. He pays the taxes. He goes to Yeshua, and when he enters the house, Yeshua immediately asks him. Now, as far as we can tell by the Scripture, Peter doesn't come in and go, you won't believe what a tax collector asked me. Yeshua seems to know about this conversation without Peter ever actually telling him. So it kind of demonstrates the, you know, 
the powers of, of Yeshua to know of a conversation he, did, he didn't even hear, right? And Yeshua asks him, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs and taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Well, Peter is like, well, uh, from strangers. And Yeshua replies, then the sons are exempt. He's referring to Peter and himself as sons of the Father. God the Father is the sovereign of the temple, and therefore the sons of the Father are free from the tax. But then Jesus makes a statement in 17 verse 27, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea and cast a hook. And the first fish you catch, take it and open its mouth, and you will find money. And then take that coin and give it to them for the both of us. This is what Yeshua instructs him. Okay? So Peter goes out and he casts a hook and he opens the fish's mouth and miracle, there's money. So what's important to realize here is that Yeshua is not telling Peter, we're exempt, so ignore the tax. He's saying we're supposed to be exempt, so we're going to pay it anyway so we won't offend them. That's one thing. Notice that Yeshua also doesn't go up to Peter and go, oh, oh, hey, hey, ooh, what do I see behind your ear? Oh, look, here's money, go pay the tax. He doesn't do that, right? He's not a stage magician. He doesn't do that. But he also doesn't miracle the money in some flamboyant way, nor does he just give it. What he tells Peter is, Peter, you're a fisherman. Go fish. Ply your trade. Work. And there will be a blessing. And so what we see is what Yeshua shows is that the blessings of, of heaven don't come about in idleness. You want God to bless you and take care of you financially, He'll give you finances if you have needs, but you've got to work for it. You'll find blessings. Somebody may come and give you a windfall, but they're not going to do it if you're just sitting around the house waiting for it. You need to go out and you need to try to take care of business. The blessing comes through Peter's labor. But let's see what else God has to say about money. Now, there's an obvious one in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you know, if you love money, that's what you're going to love, right? So understand, that's, that's an obvious one that people like to use to, to try to say that money is evil. It's an obvious one, and, and we need to consider it. But let's, let's see what else God says about, about money. We're going to go to Malachi in chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 8. I'm going to read you three different versions. We have three different versions here, luckily, because what we find is that Murphy didn't get us. Murphy's Law didn't get us. We actually have this in the Dead Sea Scrolls too. So I'm going to read you the Septuagint, the Masoretic Text, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. You have to understand what's going on here. At the time Malachi is talking, basically Israel is keeping the tithes and the first fruits. They're not giving. And it really doesn't matter if they give them anyway because when they do give them, the priests are plundering it. They're squandering it. They're misappropriating it. This is very clearly addressed in the Septuagint. The Masoretic texts, 
don't really address it as bluntly as the Septuagint does. So you're going to notice this difference in the text. And this is one of those instances where really the, the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of agree with the Masoretic text. They don't really call the priests out for plundering the house of God. So it's, it's, it's kind of a dichotomy that we're going to see in the text, even though we've got three different traditions here. So here's the Septuagint. Does a man dare to rob God? Yet you're plundering me. And you say, in what way have we plundered you? In the tenths and the offerings, the tenths meaning the tithes, a curse is upon you on your whole nation because you plunder me. Bring the tenths whole into the storehouse and it will be plundered in its house. Yet says Adonai, test me in this. Shall I not open for you the bounty gates of heaven to pour down blessings upon you without measure? For your sake I will forbid the locust to destroy your crops, and the vine in the field shall not be barren. So says the Lord. Okay, that's the Septuagint version. Here is the Masoretic version. It's not as clear as to the plundering of the house. In fact, it says something different. It says, bring all the tithe into the, the treasure house that there will be food in my house. So that's that's what the Masoretic says. So it's a little, a little less clear about the plundering, but here's the Masoretic. Doth a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In the tithes and the offerings. You are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, or Adonai. Will I not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it? And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. Now here is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Will a man insult God? For you have insulted me. But you say, how have we insulted you? And the tithes and the first fruits are with you. So the Dead Sea Scrolls is making it clear that the people aren't giving the tithes and the first fruits. And you surely look on appearances and you rob me, even this whole nation. Bring every tenth into the, into the storehouse that there may be food in my houses. And prove me now on this, says Adonai, if I will not open up to you the windows of heaven and pour out the blessing upon you until it flows over. And I will rebuke the locust for your sake, and he shall not destroy the fruits of the ground. Neither shall your vine in the field cast its fruit before its time, says the Lord Almighty. All right, so that's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, let's look at what else God has to say about money. The wisdom of Sirach. Septuagint, obviously. Verse 23 from chapter 13. Wealth in which there is no sin is good, but poverty is evil in the mouth of an ungodly man. Hmm, that's interesting. Ecclesiastes, verse 10 of chapter 5. This is Masoretic. Whoso is loving silver is not satisfied with silver, nor he who is in love with stores with increase. 
Even this is vanity. And the multiplying of good have its consumers been multiplied. And what benefit is it to its possessor except the sight of his eyes? Here's the Septuagint. He that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver, and he that loves gain in the abundance thereof. This is also vanity. In the multitude of good they are increased that eat it. And what virtue has the owner but the right of beholding it with his eyes? Dead Sea Scrolls, unfortunately, this is gone. Let's look at Psalm 37, 16 through 17. Better the little that, that the righteous have than wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Proverbs 13, 11. Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Proverbs 17, 16. Why should fools have money in hand to buy wisdom? when they are not able to understand it. That's Masoretic. Here's the Septuagint version. Why does the fool have wealth? For a senseless man will not be able to purchase wisdom. He that exalts his own house seeks ruin, and he that turns aside from instruction shall fall into mischief. So a little bit different than the Septuagint. Here's Hebrews 13 verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. None is able to serve two lords for either he will hate one and love the other or he will hold to one and despise the other. You are not able to serve God and mammon. Now, let me address mammon or mammon. Hellenistic Greek uses that word and and what it says in the Hellenistic Greek is the equivalent of M-A-M right, and then O. So one M. So there's a little bit of confusion on this. The Aramaic word M-A-M-O-N-A mamona is an emphatic form of the word mamon. M-A-M-O-N. It means wealth or profit in Aramaic. The Greek causes a little confusion because the Hellenistic Greek has one equivalent of M. The spelling M-A-M-M-O-N-A refers to a Syrian deity. And you'll get translations that use both the double M form as a proper name and the single M form. So it causes a little confusion. It matters little is the point because a Syrian deity may be a kinning for riches. All right, a kinning, remember, is a metaphorical phrase that, that, that refers to another noun. So the Syrian deity form, M-A-M-M-O-N, as a proper name, may be a kinning for, for riches. However, if the, if the scripture is really referring to the single M form from Aramaic, it directly means wealth. It doesn't matter whether this is referring to the Syrian, Syrian deity or it's referring directly to wealth. The context makes it clear whether it's a kinning or not, it's referring to wealth, okay? So I just wanted to address that. If you read the scriptures, it becomes pretty clear what God despises. He despises not wealth. God doesn't despise money. He is despising the violation of the first of the Ten Commandments have no other God before me. This is what God despises. Clearly God despises this violation because of what we see in Job. 
Job is a truly wealthy man. He is truly wealthy and he handles his wealth in the appropriate way. And God says he's blameless. Yet, Hasatan, and we'll deal with Hasatan in another episode, and who he is, there's, there's at least two traditions as to who Hasatan was. Okay? There is debate as to whether or not he's the devil. Okay? Just to tell you that. You won't hear that preached in most churches, but there is debate, and we'll deal with that in another episode on the identity of Hasatan and who he really was, or what the traditions of who he really was are. But let's look at Job chapter 42. We're going to start with verse 7. And I'm going to deal with verse 7 first because, you know, if Job was this evil rich man, God should not, not have said what he's about to say. Okay? This goes to show that even in his wealthiness, he's blameless. Going through all these trials, hear what God still says about Job. 42nd chapter of Job, verse 7. And it comes to pass after God speaks these words unto Job that God said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken concerning me rightly as my servant Job did. And now... I'm telling you to take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and make a burnt offering to ascend for you. And Job, my servant, shall pray for you. For his face, some translations will say his prayer, for his face I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly or sin as it's sometimes translated because you have not spoken concerning me rightly unlike my servant Job. So God says I am so angry with you for speaking falsely about me that I will not forgive you if you pray. I will forgive you if Job prays for you. He puts Job, and I'm, I've got to be very careful here because I'm not trying to be blasphemous, okay? But he puts Job in the place, in this instance, of Redeemer. Yeshua is our intercessor. He is our Redeemer. This is prior to Yeshua coming, okay? But Job is so righteous and God is so angry with Eliphaz and his two friends that he allows Job to take a Christly role as intercessor. They have to get forgiveness through Job. That tells you how God felt about Job. I don't think there is any plainer way to show how God felt about this rich man. God says that Job is so worthy in his humility that he is going to be the redeemer for you three. 
I think that's a very powerful message. And again, don't take that the wrong way. I'm not saying that to in some way take away from Yeshua. I'm not. But it shows the great profundity of God's love and appreciation. And I don't think it's wrong to say he appreciated Job's humility. It shows his appreciation and the value of Job and the extent of his righteousness in the eyes of God. And I think that's a very profound statement as to the character of Job, that he is elevated, at least in this instance, to the Redeemer for these three people. He's the intercessor. Well, I would say Redeemer. That he is elevated to the position of intercessor for redemption. Okay? God is the ultimate Redeemer, right? But he says you can't be redeemed unless Job prays for you. I'm that mad with you. And I'm that happy with Job. So I just have to point that out. That is that is extremely powerful. Okay? So, you know, sort of summarizing that. So Job the rich dude is okay in God's eyes. His friends, they're in hot water. So much so that Job has to pray to keep them from getting the fire and brimstone judgment that they deserve. So then we're told, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job. So at the end of Job's days, he is blessed more than in his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen. Remember, a, a yoke is a, is a pair. So that's 2,000 oxen and a thousand she-asses. And he is also given seven sons and three daughters. So God more than restores Job. He restores Job plus more. Hardly the wealth hater, right? God's hardly the wealth hater here. So what does this all tell us about Simon and the rich young ruler? All right, well, first of all, Simon was not wealthy. He misused wealth to try to influence people, to try bribery, and this God obviously detests. Well, what about the wealthy young Lord? He was not wealthy either. You see, a wealthy person owns wealth. They own their wealth. Job owned his wealth. And his attitude and his character toward his wealth was right. God gives wealth for us to own in his name because God created everything. Hence the trick question, right? And the trick answer. Remember when Yeshua was asked, you know, well, here's a coin with Caesar. Who does this belong to? Who should we give? And the Pharisees and the people that are his critics are trying to trick him. And so Yeshua, perceiving the trick question, gives a trick answer. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But render unto God the things that are God. Well, who made Caesar? And who made everything Caesar owns? The trick answer for the trick question. God made everything. So everything is owned by God, even Caesar. So let's look at let's look at Job. Job owns the wealth for God. 
God gives it to him and he owns it for God. And that's his attitude. I am a steward of the blessings that God has given me. He owns his wealth because God gives it to him and he takes righteous ownership. Simon and the young Lord don't own wealth. They're owned by it. That's the difference. And that is why I say that the wealthy young Lord was not wealthy at all. He was a slave. He was a slave to his wealth. He didn't own it. He, was, he had become owned by it. He couldn't let it go. It was his God. And when meeting this young Lord, Yeshua perceived his heart. And this is why Yeshua calls for him to give up all his wealth. Not because Yeshua despised wealth, but because he knew this man wasn't wealthy. He was a slave. He was owned. He didn't own. And this is why Yeshua says, you must turn away from your false God. That's the message that Yeshua gave. But too many people don't understand it. The disciples themselves, being very astonished at what Yeshua said, didn't understand the message Yeshua was teaching them. They didn't understand it. They thought it was about camels and, 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 and needles and, and rich people going to hell. Which is the way this is interpreted in most churches. These, these scriptures are interpreted in entirely the wrong way. There is nothing sinful in having wealth if it is gained honestly. God will bless you in many ways. But if He chooses to bless you in material wealth, it's not a sin if you own the wealth. It becomes a sin when you allow the wealth to own you. But is there something sinful in those that have no wealth? Hmm. That's a frightening thought, isn't there? Remember what the wisdom of Sirach said. Wealth in which there is no sin is good, but poverty is evil in the mouth of an ungodly man. So what's Sirach talking about there? Well, what we find is that one of the great problems with wealth is the problem with people surrounding it. Jealousy. Jealousy rears its head. One of the great sins associated with wealth is not only that people that have it oftentimes give themselves over to it, but is also the fact that people that don't have the wealth see the wealthy and they become jealous and envy eats at their hearts and they fall into violation of yet another of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. It is not the right of people to judge the rightness of a person's wealth. In our society today, we are preached at constantly through the secular politicians and their evil agendas that we should hate the rich, that we should 
steal their money. Theft is forbidden by God. The redistribution of wealth is the taking of wealth that someone has and giving it to someone who doesn't earn it. It is communism. And I'm going to say this categorically. Our society has seen the rise in our country of people who have communist values. And it is against the word of God. Thou shalt not steal. Redistribution of wealth is theft. It is stealing. And it is abhorrent in the eyes of God. He tells us in the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not steal. And it is not the right of people to judge the rightness of a person's wealth. God bestows wealth to Solomon. He asks Solomon, would you like wealth? Would you, you know, what do you want? You want this, you want this, you want this. Solomon says, I want wisdom. And so being pleased, God gives amazing wealth to Solomon. God bestows wealth to Job. And when the envious eyes of others have looked at Job, they likely judged him. Hasatan certainly sees and takes up that baton and says, oh, well, he's wealthy, so obviously he can't be godly. And he goes and, and contends with God on this issue and says, let me afflict him. I guarantee you I can make him curse you because he is no good. He is an evil, sorry, no good, rich cat. He is a fat, rich cat, and he is no good. And that reflects a lot of, the pe of people's attitudes today. The attitude of Hasatan, the accuser in Job, is the attitude of a lot of people today. Evil by a heavenly, divinely created being recapitulated in our own hearts. And that's another thing that Job teaches us. We don't have the right to say who should be wealthy. The devil bestows wealth. That is absolutely true. But so does God. Are you so righteous as to tell God that he is wrong when he gives wealth to someone? And you say, but you just said the devil bestows wealth. Are you so wise as to be able to discern who enriched what person? There's another lesson from Job. Don't let jealousy color your judgment. I'm not a wealthy man. I struggle. And especially in today's economy with what our leaders have done to this economy, many people are hurting. I'm hurting. Desperately hurting at times. I've had to... I've, there are times that in my life and some not too far away when I've been scrounging to be able to fill up the gas tank. I struggle. A lot of people are. But don't let your struggle cause you bitterness and don't let envy poison your relationship with God. Trust that God will embrace the poor and the righteously rich and He will be just in His dealings with the evil ones and the unrighteously rich according to his wisdom and his knowledge. It's been said that God created man in his own image, and then man returned the favor. 
Don't try to recreate God in your image. Don't make your wrath God's wrath. That's not our right. God created us in His image. We don't have the right to try to make Him in ours. Too long have people preached of the evils of wealth out of jealousy. That's not the Word of God. Heed the Word of God and trouble your mind rather to how your walk with God is going. Not to how some other person's walk with God is going or how much they have that you don't. Not with bitterness and envy toward others do we help our relationship with God. So that's our take-home message tonight. God does not despise wealth. He makes it very clear that He doesn't. He despises those that use wealth as their God. Those that steward His blessings, God heaps blessings upon. And that is righteous, right, and good to accept the blessings of God and use them in a godly manner. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies, and I hope that it's given you something to think about. It's easy to get wrapped up in today's political climate when you've got an entire political party screaming and hollering that we should be making war on each other because of jealousy, and because of wealth. I hope you've been able to listen to this message tonight, and if it spoke to you, get down and pray. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your preacher. Talk to your priest. I hope God moves your heart tonight. And if He does, so much the better. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. Until next time, God bless you, and may the peace and love of God wash over you, and may the Lord protect you and keep you, and may He open up the floodgates of heaven. Be generous, and He will. He promises that. In the name of Yeshua, good night.